Would you glorify yourself? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine that a theoretical physicist, an experimental physicist, an astrophysicist, and an aerospace engineer are on a road trip together, and they begin to have car trouble. Now, these guys are some of the smartest people on the planet, and so whenever the car stalls out, it's no surprise that when the driver asks them, hey, does anyone know anything about a combustible engine? They're all like, yes, of course, it's rudimentary technology, really. But then he asks them a follow-up question. Does anyone know how to fix it? And of course, dead silence. And the point being is, is knowledge is only helpful in real life if, if you know how to apply it, which is what we're going to try to do this evening. Throughout this series, we have been exploring what the Bible has to say about sexuality. We, we've been uh, gleaning the clarity that it gives uh, for an often blurry topic. Uh, and, and since I was out sick last week, let me, let me briefly remind you of the journey that we've been taking in this series. Uh, so we said to really have any type of conversation about sexuality, we have to understand that sexuality is not identity. Right? Identity, our identity, is that we are image bearers. We are made to reflect God's image, to reflect his goodness, his character, his justice into creation. If this is our identity, if this is our purpose, that means that sexuality uh, supports that. And so the goal is not heterosexuality. The goal is holiness. And it expresses itself in one of two equally good ways, either in singleness, where we practice chastity, fleeing sexual immorality, or in marriage, we practice faithfulness. This is very good. It's also very difficult, which is why we don't need friends. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us along the journey. And all of this lays the, the groundwork to receive an important truth, that the, what the Bible says about same-sex attraction, that practicing homosexuality is wrong, that it doesn't fit into God's ideal for sexuality. And that's, that's the knowledge component. And what we're going to do tonight is I want us to look at how do we apply that truth to our lives, specifically when we are interacting with those who are same-sex attracted. And to do that, we, we look to Jesus to see how he engaged with a particular sinner. And, and so if you close your Bibles, open them back up. I want you in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 with me. And from our text, I want us to make three movements. I want us to look at Jesus' practice, uh, our problems, and the purpose, okay? So Jesus' practice. The text tells us that Jesus entered Jericho when he was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. We're introduced to this guy named Zacchaeus, and he tells us he's a tax collector. In other words, he works for the IRS. Now, most people are not fans of people who work for the IRS, but the first century IRS was way worse than the 21st century. Um, taxes were collected by locals, so it wasn't necessarily the Romans who were doing the tax collecting. In this case, it would be the Jews. And, and as long as Rome got the allotted amount, amount they were expecting, they kind of didn't care if the tax collectors charged service fees and etc., etc. And so tax collectors were not only known as traitors because they are helping the occupying government 
they were also extortionists. They were robbing their neighbors blind by charging them whatever they felt like charging them that day. And so a tax collector was the very definition of a sinner in the first century. And the fact that Zacchaeus is both a chief tax collector and he was rich tells us that he was very good at being bad. And yet Luke tells us that he is curious about this new religious leader, this Jesus. And because he's a shorter guy and no one's going to be kind to him and let him stand in the front of the crowd, he has to resort to climbing up a sycamore tree to get a look at Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he, he hurried, he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Well, the people here are really upset, and they have good reason to be upset. Uh, to stay over at someone's house, to be someone's guest, was more than just getting a free meal. Uh, to be someone's guest in the first century was a, a demonstration of acceptance, uh, which, which meant that no one would have ever set foot in Zacchaeus's house. No one would ever come to his parties. No one would ever set foot in his, uh, his doorstep because he's a sinner. And they didn't want to be associated. They didn't want to accept him. And yet, we have Jesus who does, who says through his actions that he loves even this guy. And we might think to ourselves, oh, Jesus is just being tactful here, that, that he, he's not going to shame Zacchaeus in public, but once he gets inside, he's going to let Zacchaeus have it. But what does he do? Nothing. He just goes in and spends time with Zacchaeus. He feels no, there's nothing in the text that says he went in and said, hey, I'm fine being your friend, but first I need to tell you I'm not cool with all the things that you are doing. He just goes in and spends time with Zacchaeus. And yet the text tells us that Zacchaeus experiences a great transformation. He not only acknowledges the error in his ways, but he seeks to make restitution and conform his life to the pattern God lays out in the Mosaic Law. And, and here's the point this text is trying to get at. When engaging with sinners, Jesus leads with love. Sinners in need of grace cannot obey God until they know they, that they are first loved and, loved and accepted by God. See, acceptance always precedes obedience. And which means that that should be our practice too. See, Zacchaeus is an excellent stand-in for someone who is same-sex attracted because modern-day Christians tend to view them like ancient religious Jews viewed tax collectors with scorn, with ridicule, and shame. But what Jesus demonstrates and really demands of his followers is, is to lead with love. But we don't necessarily like this. Do we? Uh, and in fact, I think if we're honest, we have a couple of problems with Jesus' game plan. So let's, let's be honest about those problems, shall we? One of them uh, is that we believe that if we accept them, if we value and love them, well, that means we approve of and affirm all of their choices. 
And so we feel the need to completely separate ourselves from them or, or repeatedly state our position on their actions. But I wonder if we're making an incorrect association. Does Jesus' love and acceptance mean that he approves of someone's sin? This is a real question, yes or no? No. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Jesus does not approve of prostitution. Jesus, here in our text, hangs out, goes to, to, is the guest of a tax collector. This does not mean that he supports or endorses extortion. Jesus was close friends with a woman who was caught in adultery. This does not mean that he's pro-adultery. Do you see my point? That accepting and valuing, valuing someone as a human, as someone who is created in God's image, doesn't mean that you wholesale endorse everything that they do. Uh, we, we've, we've misassociated those two things together. Another problem we have with Jesus' game plan of leading with love, of fronting love, is that, that we become concerned that it will damage our, our witness. And, and that is a commendable concern. But do you know how Jesus said that we would witness to people what our chief witness would be? Uh, it's if we love one another. They'll know us by our love. And so if we are concerned about our witness, then our top priority ought to be loving and valuing the people around us. But what I think we're actually worried about here is not our witness, we're worried about our reputation, uh, which is not as much of a Christ-like concern. Je Jesus really wasn't concerned with his reputation. Matthew eleven nineteen tells us that, that Jesus was known as being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And I think that in general, we as Christians have a very different reputation than our Savior, at least in this area. And I actually think that's where the problem lies. If, I, if I'm honest, if I look at myself, I think the problem here with Jesus' game plan rests in my own arrogance. Uh, the, this belief that, that I, that we are better than others because we haven't sinned in such a brilliant fashion as they have. And when we think that we're superior, there is this, this compulsion to condemn and let them know that they are in the wrong, that they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps just like we did. And while it is true that they, their, their practice is wrong, condemning them doesn't accomplish the goal. See, informing someone that they're wrong and calling for their obedience doesn't actually bring about change. And do you know how I know that? Because they and we are sinners. See, see, there is a reason that shouting into a megaphone, you are going to hell, you need Jesus, generally isn't met with a lot of enthusiasm or results. It's because that announcement doesn't change a sinner's heart because all it communicates to them is that God, the God you serve has a vendetta against them, which is what we all actually believe deep down. Uh, if we're honest, we are all convinced that God actually doesn't care about us, that he's just a cosmic dictator who wants everyone to follow his rules, and he will have a big tantrum if you don't. That type of belief, that conviction, does not bring about 
obedience, which is why Jesus came. Jesus is the demonstration of God's love and valuing of us, that even though we're sinners, he died for us. And the apostle John uh, points out in 1 John 4 that the way God loved us is the model for how we ought to love others. So let's think about that for a second. God did not love us because we were holy, but God loved us into holiness. In the same way, our love isn't based on a person's holiness, but our love certainly seeks that person to be holy, to help them pursue that. We ought to love sinners because we desire to see them image God and reflect His holiness, and that will not happen unless they experience God's love and care for them through us. This is our approach. This is what Jesus calls us to. We don't condemn into compliance. We love into holiness. And that's really a great place to land the series, but there is also so much more to say. Uh, And I know that there are so many questions in this topic that we have left unanswered. And that's partially because what you'll find is your questions are situational and they are complex. Uh, They get messy. And so what we've tried to do in this series is we've tried to give you guys principles to help you think through how do I respond in this or that situation. So uh, in like the last couple of minutes we have, let me take two questions that, that, you have, that a lot of you have asked, and, and I want us to, to walk through how this helps us, okay? Uh, perhaps the biggest question we, we, we should ask ourselves after a talk like this is how do we love a same-sex attracted person without affirming their actions? Well, principle-wise, uh, since someone who is same-sex attracted is made in God's image, it means that, that we, we value them like any other human being. We ought to treat them as if they are made in the image of God because they are. And, and, and that we kind of freak out about that. Yes, but how do we do that? How, what does that mean? Don't mystify it. It's, it's way more straightforward than you think. You, you treat them like you would want to be treated. They're human just like you. They want to be loved and cared about and known just like everyone else does. They like ice cream just like you do. They are probably dismayed at the downward spiral of Marvel movies just like you and I are. Don't overthink it. Just engage with them. Another popular question. What do I do if I have a friend who's a Christian and confides to me that they are attracted to someone of the same sex. Well, what's our goal? If our goal is heterosexuality, what that leads us to is to condemn them into conformity, into compliance. You ought not to do that. If our goal, though, is their holiness, well, then we want to love and encourage them to remain chaste while they're single. And you know what? The way they're going to do that is because they are surrounded by brothers and sisters who love them into holiness. Do you see how these, the principles we've been trying to lay down help us think through and respond in a way that is reflective of our Savior? 
Guys, I know that there are, are so many questions left that are, are still unanswered. And so I want to close out this series saying that the door is wide open to keep talking about them. And just because we're done with the series does not mean that we're done conversing. Please, come talk to me. Talk to your leaders. We would love to walk through this or any situation that you guys find yourself in. We are here for you. You are our brothers and brothers and sisters in Christ. And our, our hope, our desire is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 